Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy, here's something amazing. Craft sanity, craft sanity, art and craft creativity, interviews with people who make, they are here to help keep you sane. Craft sanity, craft sanity, craft sanity. Hello and welcome to episode 215. On this show, I'm going to bring you a conversation that I recorded recently with Katrina Rodabaugh. She is the author of a brand new book that's coming out called Make Thrift Mend. And many of you may already be following her on Instagram and familiar with her website and her previous work. She's an artist, writer, and crafter who is really multidisciplinary. And she explores the environmental and social issues through traditional craft techniques. She was inspired to stop consuming, you know, going to the store and buying a bunch of cheap clothes. She has been on a fashion fast, as she explains it, since August of 2013. And she's going to explain what led her to make this shift in her life. And really, her book is grown out of that. Her book is absolutely beautiful. It makes you want to just kind of hit pause on your life, grab a needle and thread, and your favorite jeans that have a tear in the knee, and just sit down and start mending. So if you have a bit of a mending pile, now might be a great time to start working on it. Grab a project and settle in for a very inspiring conversation with Katrina. Katrina, it's so awesome to have you as a guest on the podcast today. I took a look at an advanced copy of your book, and it is just awesome. The photos are delightful. Makes me want to just repair every pair of jeans I have in my house. Great. Thank you. So um, I wish I could mend fast enough, but your book is called Mending Matters and it's just, it's gorgeous. So congratulations. Uh, It's, it's really lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it a lot. This is your second book and Mm -hmm. um, the first one on this topic on mending and all these lovely stitches that are so relaxing to do. Who thought repairing a pair of jeans could actually be quite fun? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, exactly. It's it's just a lot of people don't really expect that, but it's like a Zen kind of thing, which is we need that, especially now. I feel like we're living in a crazy time. So uh, I know you wear many hats, but um, so how would you summarize your work to someone who doesn't know you yet? I say that I'm an artist and a writer and that I work um, across disciplines focused on social and environmental concerns through traditional crafting techniques. So what I do right now is I'm focused on sustainable fashion, and that is mending and natural dyes and sort of looking at the larger slow fashion movement through writing and community projects and teaching. I read that there was a particular event that led you to really focus on slow fashion and being a little more um, conscious about what you were wearing and what you were, you know, reusing things and making things yourself. And can you talk a little bit about that? April 2013 is when the Rana Plaza um, garment factory collapsed in Bangladesh and almost 1,200 people were killed. 
And that was really the moment for me when I took many of my sort of passions, um, actually did my undergrad in sustainability and then went to work straight for art organizations. Then I went back to graduate school for creative writing and book arts, but started working in fiber more. And, but after the factory collapsed, it was sort of this moment where I just felt this really uh, passionate need to shift my own habits uh, around clothing. And so I called the project Make Thrift Mend. And for a year, I didn't buy any new clothing, but instead I focused on making, buying secondhand and mending. But it was really the factory collapse that I think was kind of this wake up call to a lot of people in slow fashion and working in sustainable fashion because it was a catastrophe. And I think it was this moment when we got to see a little bit behind the scenes, you know, of how bad some of these factories conditions are and, you know, what's happening, how our clothes are being made. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot so, of people yeah. don't think about that. You know, you, you get something on sale, you can get five shirts and they're all really cheap and you're like, hey, I'll get every color. Yeah, um, exactly. And not really thinking about, you know, if you make your own t-shirt, it's going to take a lot longer. Yeah, um, it's going to take a lot longer. Yeah, and for you're, sure. You're only going to want to make one before you get a little tired. You know, yeah. and then you have to take a break. Uh, you can't make five in like in, a, in one sitting. So, yeah. uh, have you been able to stick with that? Um, and do you still have that uh, make thrift men kind of um, outlook as far as your clothing goes, or do you buy clothing that's new, or do you buy sustainable clothing? Like, how do you s- decide what to buy? Yeah. So, yeah, the the project will be five years old in August. Um, so the factory collapse was in April, but I started the project officially that next August. And each year I've sort of shifted the parameters a little bit. So the first year I didn't buy any new clothing at all. It was all um, I had made dresses in college and sold them at a little local boutique. But, you know, this was like 15 years later or longer. And I went back to making simple garments and then um, buying secondhand and mending. And that was the first year. And I very quickly started focusing on biodegradable materials for things I was making and things that I was buying secondhand. And then the second year I realized that I had kind of ruled out like artisan handmade clothes and I didn't mean to do that. Um, (laughs) So the second year I could buy if it was locally made or, um, or handmade, you know, they're all handmade, but I meant like made by the person selling it. Okay. Um, And then the third year, I said that I could buy new if it was sustainable and I'd prioritize organic cotton. And that was really because I needed new like leggings and underwear and socks and things that I wasn't finding, you know, in kind of like the handmade or, and I didn't want to buy secondhand. Right. The the secondhand underwear market is not really (laughs) a bustling market right now. No, or socks or socks. Right. Um, So then the fourth year I turned to my materials and that was actually the hardest year. I looked at my fabrics and my threads and, um, and for teaching, you know, the supplies I was using in class and how could I make that the most sustainable. And this is my fifth year. And I actually have gone back to handmade again this year, um, to sort of focus again on, on some handmade garments and how can I make those as sustainable as possible. So using the fabric in my stash or naturally dyed, um, fabrics or taking secondhand garments and turning them into something else, redesign. So that's where I'm at right now. Has this led to maybe a closet that is not super cluttered? Because, you know, when people get in that habit of buying like the five shirts from Old Navy, uh, you suddenly have more clothes than you actually need. And and did you go through kind of a purge where you got rid of things? Or, um, I mean, did you maybe you just didn't have a lot to start with? I don't know what your buying habits were before this change. 
Yeah. I mean, I feel like I have, I think we all feel kind of normal, right? Like I feel like I have an average number of clothes in my closet. Um, I didn't have a big purge because the tricky part is the more you start sort of studying sustainable fashion, you realize that, you know, when you purge your clothes. Yeah. um, They don't go to the place you think they're going to go. Yeah. Or they only stay there for 40 days, um, you know, because of the sort of retail turnaround. Right. So that got trickier, but that was actually part of the reason that I turned to sustainable or biodegradable clothing to begin with, because then I knew, okay, if I donate it to the Goodwill, it's going to get bailed and stored in a warehouse. It's going to get shipped overseas, um, or it might get burned or buried. And at least if I'm using biodegradable fabric and clothing, it has a chance, you know, to biodegrade once it sits in that landfill. Um, so I feel like I kind of, I'm like kind of always purging a little bit, I think, especially because I have two kids. Um, so, you know, I maybe two or three times a year will go through my closet and, you know, sort of pull out things for clothing swaps or sometimes I'll send things to friends if they've commented on that, you know, particular garment or something. I'll say, do you want it? And, you know, sometimes they say yes. Um, or, you know, I might end up taking it to the Goodwill if, if I don't find another home for it first. And when you talk about biodegradable fabrics, um, what sort of fabrics are you talking about? Basically plant-based or animal-based. Um, so cotton, linen, silk, wool, hemp. And, you know, that is even tricky. It's, I feel like with sustainable living, you kind of get into it and you realize, okay, I'm going to make this next choice, which feels like a more sustainable choice. And then you realize that's a little bit complicated, you know, mm-hmm. and so then you're going to make the next. So I always say it's just about making better choices because there is no perfect choice. Um, with something like leggings, you know, it mine are like 95% organic cotton, but there's still that 5% synthetic that makes it stretch. Right. Or like an elastic waistband, things like that, I, I kind of have to make my peace with because I can't, or outerwear, you know, um, I think the trickiest things are really shoes, undergarments, outerwear, and swimwear and athletic wear. Right. Cause um, a lot of it is wicking and lycra yes. and yeah. 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 And we don't want our leggings to fall down at yoga class, you know, so, you know, not so much, not so much. <laughs> I mean, we could wear something else, which is right. always an option. Right. Um, And, you know, I think it's really fascinating to look back like 100 years and think, well, what were people wearing? What were runners wearing? You know, what were people wearing outdoors in in January and where I live? Was it that project that began in 2013, like in response to a tragedy that had happened in the clothing industry? Is that what led eventually to this book, um, Mending Matters, because you started repurposing? Yeah, absolutely. So that first year I started the project, it was really just kind of passion based. It wasn't necessarily like ideal timing to do a fast, you know, or anything like that. Um, I had also just heard an interview on NPR with Elizabeth Klein, who's the author of Overdressed, um, the shockingly high cost of cheap fashion. And I had been reading Natalie Channon's um, blog post about the need for slow fashion during fashion week. And so it was really those three things. It was like the, the, um, you know, the tragedy, the factory collapse was what really caught my attention. But then hearing these two other voices talk about sustainable fashion, talk about slow fashion, I realized, oh, there's people doing this work. You know, there's there's already this thing happening. So I couldn't buy any new jeans and I wear jeans a lot. And I had a toddler at the time, my oldest son, We'd be on the sidewalks in Oakland or at the parks or things like that. And my knees just kept breaking, like the, not my knees, but you know, the knees of my jeans just kept tearing. And, um, I had to fix them because I couldn't buy them new. And I did have secondhand, you know, stores all around me in Oakland. Um, but we get attached to our jeans, you know, we want them to fit and feel a Mm -hmm. certain way. Finding jeans that fit is so hard. 
Jeans can be really tricky. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's when I started mending and my first book came out right around there, um, which was the paper playhouse, which is like upcycled paper toys for kids. But my heart was really in fabric and fiber. And a friend of mine asked me to teach a mending workshop at the fabric store where she worked. And I thought, what? Like a mending? Who wants to take that? You know, it's like, who wants to sit and mend their clothes? I'm doing this because this is this project I'm working on. And she was really confident that people would want to mend their clothes. And that first workshop sold out. And I was shocked. And I, you know, booked another one and it sold out. And after, I don't know, a few months of this, I sort of realized, okay, this is really a need. And um, so I started teaching the workshops and I even taught some online. And then I started thinking about my next book and knew that I wanted it to be mending. That's awesome. And where did you learn to mend? Did you have to figure it out during this project or did you already know how? No, I very much had to figure it out. Um, My mom is a, uh, I don't know if she'd call herself a fiber artist, but she's a crafter. So I learned to sew with her, you know, when I was a kid and that kind of thing. But I always say, so I had some background in that. And then I started working in fiber arts installations and lots of collaborations and things for exhibition. So I had some stitching skills and I had this kind of understanding of fiber. But, you know, my first mending was what I knew growing up, which was just that iron-on patch. And I hated it so much. I hated it as a kid, and mm-hmm. I even hated it as an adult <laughs> because it's adhesive. So you're right. basically gluing a piece of fabric, you know, to your clothes. It changes the drape. It changes the texture. I did that first, and I thought, God, I hate this. And and then, of course, it rips out around the patch because right. you— Right. So that was kind of my first, it was really trial and error. The one pair of jeans that I think I've mended like 10 times now is really a progression of my mending skills and of, you know, figuring out how I wanted to mend, what materials to use, um, what different techniques I could use and that sort of thing. I read a lot of books and I tried to basically, you know, find any information that I could. But at the time, five years ago, there wasn't the sort of information about mending, invisible mending that there is now. There were a couple people that I could follow. But not, you know, I, I don't think it had really reached the kind of moment it's having now. So when you started teaching the classes, what were you mending? Were you having helping people mend jeans or was it all types of garments? I thought I would be helping people mend jeans. And then little by little, people kept bringing other things in, you know, and into classes. And I thought, well, sure, we can mend that. Let's try. And then I realized that you can basically mend anything. Um, I've had people bring baby dolls into class. I've had people bring quilts and and bags and um, jackets and you know lots of denim, of course. That's awesome. Um, so it's yeah. it's not just clothing. It's whatever they want to repair, like keep around and repair. Yeah, some people bring like household textiles. Um, the baby doll was a one and only. It was pretty cute. But yeah, they can really bring anything. Most people bring garments, but I do get my fair share of quilts. Well, and the good news for the people listening is that now there there are resources and one really awesome resource that's forthcoming in October is your book. Let's talk about your book a little bit. Is This is going to be a great roadmap for somebody who wants to start mending their clothes and also just um, do some creative things with these stitching techniques as well. So can you talk a little bit about what your goal was for this book and what your what it will help people do? I think my goal was really to have something that people could use anywhere in the world because my workshops are in the United States. I travel quite a bit um, and I teach a lot in California. I teach a lot in sort of New York and New England. But If you don't live in the States or if you don't, you know, you're not able to travel to me, there really wasn't a resource for folks to to learn the mending techniques. Um, And I had a number of people ask, you know, are you going to 
have a book or is there somewhere you've published this information? And so that was really the number one goal of the book, just to have an object that people could sit with anywhere in the world and um, like they're taking my class, really. And then the how we organized the book was really around the four techniques that I came up with through my mending workshops, which is um, external patching, internal patching with a sort of a reverse applique or very simple whip stitch, and then two forms of the internal patch with the sashiko stitching and even darning. And then after that, a lot of times folks will ask, well, what do you do with a garment when it's beyond repair or when I'm done repairing it or doesn't fit anymore? Or what if I find something in the thrift store that's really beautiful fabric, but it doesn't fit me? And so the last five projects in the book are about, you know, redesigning secondhand garments. That's what they were for me. They were thrift store garments into more heirloom accessories or hand-stitched accessories. But of course, you could do that with your own clothes too. But that's kind of like a little addendum um, to just sort of add in there. And and sometimes I'll get folks who take my class who just want to learn the stitching and they don't have anything to mend. And as a family of four, clad in mostly secondhand clothing, we always have things to mend in my house. <laughs> but, you know, some people don't. And so that was also an option for folks to, you know, use the hand stitching to, to make a new garment or, or to make a new accessory. Well, and the cool thing about it is all the stitching is, I, I feel like it enhances the garment. And that's kind of a new uh, spin on it. Cause I know when I would rip my jeans as a kid and you might get one of those adhesive patches as yes. you brought up earlier. And then the knee would feel kind of weird. Like your jeans never felt the same when you're out playing. It's kind of stiff and it was kind of terrible. So yes. as a kid, my experience <laughs> with like get, having my jeans repaired, you just kind of felt like, man, this kind of stinks. Like you yeah. have a new pair of yeah. jeans. And now what I love that's happened with the trends have gone in such a beautiful way where people are trying to maintain like, and your jeans are the best when they're soft and broken in. Like that's the yeah. best time to have, you know, to, you want to get your jeans to that point and then they rip. <laughs> so exactly. So you want to be able to embellish them. And, and it's really awesome because you're seeing people, I see people around town with repair, you know, jeans that they've mended and they just look awesome. So yeah. um, I think it's, it's really, really cool that you're empowering people to um, not feel like, Oh, I look down and out because I have, you know, repaired jeans. It's, it's, you know, it's actually a, a great fashion statement now, which I think is really another um, really positive thing about it. So you're saving money and it looks cool. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a big part of it. And for me, when I was mending, I think the whole Make Thrift Mend project for me, but particularly around the mending um, or the natural dyes, I realized that I could not just rejuvenate the object, but I could actually add meaning and add this sort of um, aging grace or something to it. And I could embellish it. I could take my training in, in um, book arts and, and writing and, and having worked in the arts community for so long, and I could apply it to repair. And that was really a light bulb went off when that happened. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can just think about design when repairing my jeans. I can think about line and I can think about shape and scale and color and texture. Um, and I can really make this a design project as much as it's, you know, functional to just fix the hole in my, you know, the knee of my jeans. Um, and I think Tom of Holland, who has the visible mending program in the UK, he was the first person that I saw doing visible mending that was high contrast mending, you know, brown sweater with a red darn. Mm, um, yeah. And I, I just was blown away by that. I thought, oh, my gosh, we can not only make this beautiful, but we can also um, we can kind of reclaim 
the skill and, and make this sort of edgy aesthetic and sort of say, Hey, I'm proud of this sweater I've had. And now I mended it, you know, in this high contrast way, um, which I think is a bigger shift, you know, around mindset. Oh yeah. Because I mean, back in the day when people didn't have um, garments were way more expensive or people were making them all by hand, you just couldn't afford to just go dump the sweater and go buy 12 more at a big box store. So exactly. um, And it was kind of, and I don't think people were proud of their mending. Like people are proud of their mending because it, it, you, you can have, um, you can't really judge someone's wealth by if their jeans are mended or not, because it's something that everyone wants to do now. So it's not, it's not a stigma if you have mended, you know, patch on your jeans. Yeah, but it certainly was. And I think Elizabeth Klein, again, in her book, Overdressed, she does a really great job of kind of looking at fashion history, you know, and, and looking at when when did this pace pick up like this and why? And so you think about, you know, globalization and and how that has worked um, with economics. But But the other part of it being, just like you were saying, if you're making your garments... And particularly if you were thinking about the resources it took to make your garments, and that's time, that's materials, you didn't have you this huge amount of, you didn't have a huge wardrobe. So you fixed what was there. And I think we can all kind of remember the kind of downgrading, right? Like my jeans, once they got the iron on patch, those were my like after school play outside jeans, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, so there's that kind of thing that happens. And I think it wasn't, for some people, I'm sure it was shameful. For other people, it just was something you weren't really proud of. Maybe Maybe there's a little bit of shame, but it was just like, oh, I tore through these and I have to wear this patch. But what happens if we think, what materials do I get to use on this patch? What kind of stitching do I get to try on this patch? Then it becomes this opportunity. And then it becomes this, um, sure, it's a statement, it's a political statement, it's a, an aesthetic statement, but it's also an opportunity to stitch and to play with color and texture and fabric. So it sounds like you have really enjoyed this project has led you in a, in a great place where you've actually had quite a bit of fun. Uh, embellishing your your wardrobe with stitches. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still have a mending pile that I'm like, will I ever get to the bottom of that? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that'll be for book two, right? <laughs> Maybe yeah. that'll be for book two, the bottom of the mending pile. Um, but also I think with kids, you know, uh, they grow really quickly. And so they're done with that pair of pants a few months later. So if right. I don't get to it, you know, for the, so the first one gets more mended clothes, right? Cause I can pass them down to the second one. And then you have to find a friend who does mending who has children smaller than yours, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> then, and some of them get tucked into like the little keepsake box, you know, or that kind of thing. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> how old yeah. are your kids now? They're six and three. And they're boys or girls? Two boys. Two boys. Well, that that's fun. Yeah, and the boys with the knees. I think that my daughters, I think uh, they both uh, blew out of a lot of knees in their, <laughs> in their pants, you know. And, yes. But, but uh, yeah, the boys, I'm sure, um, give you a lot of mending, too. <laughs> We've got plenty of mending. Yep. <laughs> do you have any particular tools? And I know you do have a section on uh, mending tools and materials in your book. So, uh, and because people have to wait a little bit till October, um, I don't know if there's anything in general. Like, if someone is like, oh, man, I can't wait to start you know, jump in and and repair a pair of jeans that I have. Are there any, if you had only like a few tools that you would, that you really need to have, um, you know, just your preferences, what are your favorite, like, I don't know if you have favorite needles that you like to use um, or other tools. One of the biggest sort of um, tips to mending that I can give is to match your fabric and your thread to the garment that you're mending. So 
the reason I use a lot of sashiko thread is because it's 100% cotton. It's sort of like a bulkier, has a nice hand to it, has a nice kind of earthy weight. Um, and it pairs really well with denim mm-hmm. because, you know, most denim is cotton or might have a little bit of stretch. So I like to use the sashiko thread and the sashiko needles um, when I'm mending denim. But if I'm mending silk, then I'd use silk thread and I'd use a smaller needle. So I think, you know, it depends on what you're mending. But I like, for denim, I like the sashiko thread, the sashiko needles, and then I just have a pair of, you know, fabric scissors or embroidery scissors. I got really friendly with thimbles when I started mending because uh, you can't (laughs) always push hard enough. Right. And then if it's something that I've mended several times, like the pair of jeans I mentioned that, you know, on their 10th mend, I might need to push with a metal or leather thimble and then pull with needle nose pliers on the other end. Um, because it's that hard, you know, to get Mm -hmm. the needle in and out. Um, But yeah, I mean, the tools are pretty simple. And I think that's also part of what I really liked about it. My, like I said, my first son was a toddler when I started this project. And I could do the mending, like people knit, right? I could just sit down for 20 minutes and work on some mending in silence when he was napping or once he was in bed at night. And then I could put it down and, you know, pick it up again later. So that's one thing I like about it. Just need this tiny little toolkit, you know, a little pouch is what I take with me. And that's it. Do you ever put anything inside? Like if you're measuring, uh, mending a pair of, of pants, do you ever put any, like, I mean, there's different mending tools that are like the um, um, darning tools and things that you can put in there. Do you ever like put even like a, I don't know, I've seen some people put like a piece of wood or something in so they're not going all the way through. Um, it's, it's kind of, a lot of people just don't even use a hoop. They just stitch, no problem. Um, have you ever used anything else besides just holding onto the fabric? Yeah, I just hold on to the fabric and because it's mostly running stitches, I can do my stitches on top, like mm-hmm. if it's a pant leg. Um, but I have folks will sometimes ask about embroidery hoops and I don't use them, but you certainly could. If I'm darning a sweater or something like that, I do have a bunch of darning eggs, like the old wooden darning, darning eggs, uh, not for sweaters, but so much like for socks. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm darning the heel of a sock, I'll put a darning egg in there. And I've been gifted um, some as well. People bring me these beautiful old you know, wooden darning tools. Um, but usually for the denim and, and for the woven fabrics, I don't, I just use my hands. Um, but I would recommend a, a darning egg if you're doing the heel of a sock, or I've seen people even use like tennis balls or potatoes, you know, or right. um, be resourceful. Do you yeah. have, yeah, exactly. And that's the cool thing about this is you really can use what you have around. So you often, you can find a piece of fabric in your stash uh, if you're a person who sews, um, there's usually something that you can find to embellish uh, your your pants, even if it doesn't match exactly. And that's kind of fun because you have plenty of examples in your book of, of fabrics that don't match exactly and um, having fun with that. So that's really pretty awesome. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the best parts, you know, or... Like you'll have these little scraps or something, not too little, but you know, it's a few inches at least, something big enough to cover like an elbow and you're kind of saving it. And, you know, I'd made these um, pillows for our bed of this beautiful fabric and I had just a few inches left and then they ended up being the elbow squares on the shirt, you know, in the book because it was this beautiful fabric. And then you realize, oh wait, you know, I do have some fabric that's just four inches by five inches or whatever it is. Um, And then, you know, you have a chance to use it. Well, and it's better in use than just in a pile in your basement. So Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you find is the most surprising thing? Like when people come into uh, one of your mending workshops, uh, are they usually people who know how to sew already? Or are these people that are coming in without any experience stitching by hand? 
Yeah, I think it depends. I mean, I have all sorts of skill level in my classes and I'll have folks who are, have been stitching, you know, quilters, embroiderists, folks who've been stitching for a long time and they pick it up pretty quickly because they're just familiar, you know, with that sort of hand stitching. Um, but I'll have people who've never stitched anything by hand. Even some folks who are sewing a sewing machine, they don't stitch by hand that often or people who are really prolific knitters, you know, but don't stitch by hand that often. But then I'll also get designers, graphic designers and, um, you know, folks in tech in the Bay Area or folks in publishing, folks in sort of other creative industries that aren't maybe necessarily using fiber. And, you know, it might be one of one of the options they have to sort of sit with a needle and thread and, and be away from the screen and, you know, do something that's very visceral and tangible. Um, so, yeah, I get folks of all skill level. And sometimes I get people who have a really hard time just threading their needle. And that's okay. You know, then I just show them my tricks for threading a needle. The stitches are really simple. Um, and in the book, too, I very intentionally kept the stitches very simple. There's lots of beautiful embroidery stitches out there. But I wanted it to be accessible. And I wanted it to stay focused on the function of repairing. Even though that can be beautiful, I didn't want to get into a bunch of really um, kind of embellishing stitches. I wanted it to first do its job and then be beautiful, if that makes sense. I know in the last few projects I've done uh, mending uh, jeans for my myself and my my kids, um, I've used straight pins, and I don't know why mm -hmm. I've done this because I keep poking myself, and I'm uh -huh. and so I see that in a lot of yours. I mean, you use straight pins in some of these, but I was looking through it, and I'm like, why did it have? Why do I not? I have tons of quilting pins and um, all these pins that I. I'm like, why am I not using safety pins? Like, especially yeah. if you're putting it down and bring it or bring it in your bag. I've actually reached yes. into my bag and stabbed myself like seven <laughs> oh, times no. at once. Like, and I'm just like, this is beyond logic. Like, this is right. not, I am a, an educated person. I should right. know better than this. You know, yes, it's, yes. you know it's really, it's, it's so silly. But it's so yeah. something as basic as that, that I'm looking at this and I have a lot of experience sewing. But I'm looking through and, and it's just very easy. Like, as you scroll through, I'm like, I've gotten so many ideas of just how I can improve my uh, amending game without even having, you know, gone through every single read, every step by step. Um, so okay. so that's what's nice about this is that, you know, there's something for everyone. And um, and I love that. So I, I think Good. you've done a wonderful service here. Uh, Good. Good. Yeah, the, the safety pins were a big moment when I was like, oh, just like you said, oh, my gosh, I can use a safety pin and not have like 20 pins, you know, that I'm trying to like navigate through. I'm looking on page um, 30, I think it's 38. You have this really lovely tag um, about stitching. It's it's print. It looks like it's printed stitching letters across the pages, not like yeah. paper. Now, is that something that you wrote and printed? Did you? It is. Yeah. So um, I at love some that. point. Oh, thank you. At some point, I had a friend um, silkscreen poems of mine onto linen so that I could cut them out and, so and tuck them into my garments. And that was part around, you know, around the making side of it, around making simple clothing again or using simple patterns. Um, I also had this moment of thinking, well, if I'm going to spend the time to make this garment by hand, then how else can I sort of infuse or embed my aesthetic into it. And because I, you know, have been working in writing and book arts, I just thought, well, why can't I put poems in here? I mean, why can't I put text in here? Why can't I sort of leave these little love notes in here? Um, 
And so I had those poems printed. And there's this thinking in some design around um, emotional attachment, that if you can get the wearer to attach to the garment, then they're more likely to keep it. They're more likely to repair it. They're more likely to sort of take care of it, tend it. And the the example that's often given is like the wedding dress, um, which you wear once, right? And then it hangs in your closet. But you have this emotional attachment to it or someone who maybe is deceased and you have one garment of theirs that you treasure because it reminds you of them, right? You can sort of feel the essence of them. But if you can get folks to attach to the garment, which I think in handmade clothing often or, or homemade clothing, a lot of times the maker is attached from the beginning. They're just, just in choosing the pattern and choosing the fabric. There's a different level of attachment than a store-bought item. That's true. But yeah, but I, and so you're invested in it in a different way. And then your sewing skills get better and you realize which patterns you like and then you can customize the fit and, and you're even more attached to it, right? But I think that um, one thing for me in doing the Make Thrift Men project, and especially once I had my second son three years ago and we moved to our farmhouse in the Hudson Valley instead of living in this small apartment in Oakland, I had a background as an artist and like I said, I've been doing exhibitions and installations, collaborations. I'd also worked in galleries and theaters for over a decade and I thought, I knew I wanted to focus on sustainable fashion, but I didn't want to feel like I gave up my fiber arts practice. Mm-hmm. And I, I also didn't want to feel like the time in my studio was just functional. Like I didn't want to feel like I was spending the time just repairing. Um, so adding those sort of uh, personal touches, like the poems or uh, embroidered moon phases around the neckline of a dress I just finished and a dandelion in the pocket um, on the inside, kind of pushing the line a little bit around our object or, um, this idea of like amulet even, um, or these, this kind of process of making clothing more than just clothing, but how can these feel like creations, you know, like, um, these treasures that I've made and putting those little sort of extra touches definitely helps with that. I'd love to talk a little bit more about your, your art background. So before you, uh, really took to this, you know, project, you know, being so um, focused on just, you know, being mindful of what you were wearing and the garments that you're mending and, and all that wonderful, th- all those wonderful things. What was your art life like before that? Yeah, well, I did my sustainable studies degree and I got out of college and went straight to work for an arts organization um, in San Francisco. And I worked in nonprofit arts organizations mostly, um, community theaters and galleries and um, folks that had, you know, kind of community art spaces. And it was really through that work, I was always doing my own work on the side. mostly in writing and and in some kind of fiber art. But it was really through working for these nonprofits and through these community spaces that I think my idea of the arts was blown open. Um, And also I grew up in a really small town. I went to college in a small city. And then I moved to San Francisco and Brooklyn and Oakland and spent almost 20 years in these major metropolitan areas. We have access to museums and theaters and galleries and poetry readings and all these things. So it just started to expand. And I was I was working with objects a lot, you know, handmade books or um, handmade objects for exhibition. And but it was really when I was in graduate school that my book arts professor made me kind of take my fiber arts background seriously. And she really validated that informal training with my mom um, as this kind of early fiber arts training and kind of even put this like feminist spin on it of kind of reclaiming traditional craft. And so then I 
Yeah, it was pretty great. And then um, I wanted to work really big. I say it was like in response to making these tiny, tiny books. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to make something huge. And so I did a couple of large scale installations, 1600 square feet installations, but they were always collaborative. Um, and one of them, I printed Gertrude Stein poems onto fabric with a letterpress printer. And I gave them to 10 other artists to make into wearable garments or dresses. And then I worked with a choreographer to have dancers getting in and out of these garments as part of this kind of live installation. Oh, that's and awesome. then, you, yeah, and I hung fabric from the walls and had, you know, people photographed in the dresses and people dancing in the dresses and live music and um, this kind of blurring of performance and, and exhibition, which for me was really about well, what happens when you wear this dress or this object as opposed to looking at it on the wall. Um, how does that change and how does the object change when someone's moving inside of it? And, you know, that took three years to do that project. And there were over 30 collaborators at the end. Wow. I, yeah, I got grants and all kinds of things for it. So I think that was kind of the where my work had been headed. I also did another multidisciplinary installation. I was working with choreographers and um, doing sets and costumes and props. Um, and then I had two kids. <laughs> I realized <laughs> <laughs> that I couldn't do all of that. And then I kind of turned more into the craft fair world. And I was working in paper and fabric. I used to do these dolls, these little handmade monster dolls out of recycled sweaters. Um, and I did the craft world for a while and published my first book. And then once Make Thrift Mend came along and the second baby came along, I realized that I just wanted to focus on one thing. I just wanted my whole studio practice to focus on one thing. And so focusing all of that on sustainable fashion was really a relief in a lot of ways. Because when you're a mom, um, and I was still doing some consulting and teaching with the nonprofits I'd been working with, you know, it's like your free time is so limited mm -hmm. and and then your studio time gets even more limited for a lot of us. So I loved that focus. I loved that I could just go in and have a sense of what I was going to be working on, you know, for the time that I was in my studio. It was really kind of a relief in a lot of ways to be like, oh, I'm just doing this, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely a multidisciplinary. Uh, I have an approach to where I'm doing everything from weaving to printmaking. Uh, so I'm wondering, did your studio get cleaner when you've just pared it down to one thing? <laughs> Um, well, yes and no. So at the time we were in a one bedroom apartment in Oakland. Okay. My husband and I are both working artists. So we are both working from home oh, out goodness. of this space yeah. and we had our first child. And then, um, I was pregnant for my second when we actually, uh, bought our farmhouse in the Hudson Valley, which was our first house. And the farmhouse is three times the size, the square footage of that apartment. And um, so one thing that happened is like we came in and it was like we have all this empty space in our house that we'd never had in our apartment because we had the same furniture. We just moved it into this much bigger space. Right. So in some ways, I feel like my studio practice got simpler. Um, I have two studios now. I have our barn. We've converted our barn into my studio, but it's seasonal because it's not insulated and oh, it just yeah. has a wood stove. So I can be out there about eight months out of the year. And then the um, there's a third bedroom in our house that I use as my all year, you know, all season studio. At this point, I feel like I just need to get rid of a lot of things that came with me that were more of my kind of book arts, paper arts days um, and just donate them, you know, to like a, a materials for the arts or, you know, one of these organizations that will take art supplies and, and sell them to other artists because um, I'm just not using them. So I think that kind of focus helped a lot with that mm -hmm. in knowing 
where I'm, you know, what I'm purchasing, where I want to put my money, where I want to put my time. Um, but this space thing always kind of makes me laugh because my husband and I were sharing half the living room as our studio. And, you know, the other half was our like tiny living space. And then my son was in a walk-in closet with windows, you know, with his little toddler bed. <laughs> and it was all very compact, but kind of jammed. Um, so now we just have a lot more space. A lot well, that, more that's quite space. a move too. So you went from California yeah. to New York. Did you have, do you have family in New York? We did. Yeah. We're both from upstate New York. We're both from Western New York. And so I had grown up there and gone to college there. And then I moved to San Francisco for three years. And then we moved back to Brooklyn. My husband went to graduate school in New York and we moved back to Oakland for 10 years. And we looked at housing in the Bay Area, but at that time, this was about three years ago, we were getting priced out of the market pretty quickly. Um, And so we thought, well, we could move to like the outer Bay Area. We could move like two hours outside of San Francisco and Oakland, or we could move two hours outside of Manhattan and buy a huge farmhouse on an acre of land and be closer to our families. So we decided to to move back and to buy in in Hudson Valley instead. So my in-laws are just about an hour and a half away and my mom's about four hours away and we can be to Manhattan in less than two hours. So... It was a pretty, it was a pretty nice location, but it was a huge shift. Oh yeah, sure. and it sounds like it's kind of slow living now too, in a way, with being on a farm as opposed to being in the city in a tiny, jam packed space. So I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. It, so it sounds like your mending now kind of matches your surroundings in a way. I think so. I, I mean, I think that my mending, in a lot of ways, um, was sort of like a precursor to mending a 200-year-old farmhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so our house isn't huge. I mean, it's huge by urban standards. It's a three-bedroom farmhouse, um, but it's 200 years old. And so as we're repairing the house and updating the house, it was fine structurally, but it needs a lot of cosmetic help. Mm-hmm. To sort of think about mending and to think about sustainability through that process is is slow. It's a slow process to renovate it yourself and to consider your materials and to kind of go at a manageable pace when you're both working and you're raising kids. That's taught me a lot about patience (laughs) because (laughs) you can't just have it all done in three months, you know? Um, And in terms of the slow living, I always, I always feel a little conflicted by that word, even in slow fashion, because my life doesn't feel slow. You know, it feels No, you're a mom. Really, it's not going to feel yeah, slow. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm a mom and um, renovating a house and I'm working. And so it doesn't feel slow. But I do think there's something about connection. And with sustainable living, I, I always try to go back to just like the triad of our basic needs, like food, clothing, and shelter. And if I just look at food, clothing, and shelter, how can I make more sustainable choices within those three areas? And we'd always had tiny urban gardens, but moving to this acre of land, we have a huge garden. We actually just um, extended both of our gardens will be bigger this year than they have been the past two years. But I have enough space to have a flower and medicinal herb and dye garden and then to have the vegetables and um, fruits and, you know, some of the things I grow in larger scale. Like I have a whole bed of Hopi black dye sunflowers, which when I lived in cities, I had like two or four beds total. You know, Mm -hmm. that's all the gardening I could do. That's awesome. This scale has really shifted. And at this point, I feel like we're kind of we're kind of aiming more towards like a modern homestead. You know, we got chickens and bees this year and we've got the big gardens and converting the barn and just trying to think a little bit more about sustainable living and a little more self-sufficiency. We'll never grow all the food we eat. That's not my goal at all. Um, we don't grow many grains, you know, or things like that. Um 
but yeah, just to have a larger space to grow food in and to grow your own dye plants in and things like that, it really changes your relationship to the environment and, and to your materials. I mean, when you are starting the Hopi black dye sunflowers from seed, right? You're going from the seed to the plant and then you're processing the plant on the fibers. And then you only have however many weeks to use that plant fresh to get that purple gray color that I love. Because last year I tried to dry, to dry the sunflower seeds and I got a different color. So it just, it changes the whole way you're working when you're growing the plant that you'll use for the color and you only have four, four or five weeks to use it. Uh, do you do a lot of um, natural dyeing throughout the whole summer or do you just do it in the fall or what, what is your process? You know, it changes every year. It's funny. I, I was just thinking about, I just feel like so much of my work and so much of my creativity has really been refocused by having kids and then again refocused by seasons you know like living in california being in oakland for 10 years you don't have the true seasons i mean you <laughs> <No>. have shifts <laughs> but this year when it was like snowing in the middle of april i'm just thinking oh my when is this going to end you know but um so i find my creative patterns sort of tend seasonally too um in terms of, I use mostly whole based plant dyes and I forage and I grow them or their food scraps. A lot of folks use extracts, powdered extracts, which, you know, that's great. It's still a natural material. And, you know, if you're doing a higher, if you need a higher quantity of items dyed, you can, you know, the weighing, that sort of thing. Right. It's, it's great. It's a great option. But for me, I'm doing things for myself. You know, I'm, I'm doing one garment for myself or I'm going to do a couple skeins of yarn for sweaters. I've just started knitting. Um, so I really like to use the whole plant. And then my connection to that plant also, it shifts, it deepens, right? Plant identification, understanding the other uses, understanding the growing, the harvesting. So right now, we're still getting the last of our seeds in here in the Hudson Valley. Our freeze date is around like um, Memorial Day or end of May. So I'm still shoving seeds into my garden left and right, you know, just mm -hmm. to get them in there. But um, my dying, I find we have this amazing kind of burst of um, like a harvest foraging time, July, August, September. It's like everything is just so alive and so ripe and rich here. And so I do a lot of dyeing then. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out how to dry and preserve more whole plant materials for the winter because my winter dyeing tends to be the food scraps, you know, the avocado pits that right. I've saved, the onion skins, um, you know, things like that. But that's also kind of nice because I can just save the onion skins in a brown paper bag so it's still breathable. And then come February, I have all these beautiful skins to use when there's not much else. Yeah, I just um, got this incredible gold color out of onion skins I had been saving under my kitchen sink. Yeah. I just separate them, the red skins and the yellow skins yes, <laughs> in bags yes. under my kitchen sink. And I use them in a solar dye process with a little bit of alum. And I just put it outside to see what would happen. And I did one day long, pro you know, day long process. And it was, you know, I got a pretty nice yellow. And then I put more fabric in, used the same dye pot and didn't, didn't add any other color, any more plant material. Um, and I got the richest gold color and I left it out mm. for like about almost two weeks mm -hmm. and it was Beautiful. just great and it's so fun um and I I don't use any kind of store-bought stuff either I, like I just use what I you know food scraps and mm -hmm. plants I harvest and I love the fact that you never know exactly what's going to happen yeah uh, <laughs> I, I mean you just have no idea because a lot of it has to do with the plant itself I mean I yeah. I pulled weeds 
the other day, um, well, actually a few weeks ago, um, I pulled dandelions out and I had this dye pot next to me and I just pulled them out like by the roots and threw them directly into the dye pot. The whole thing, the whole plant, even dirt, everything went mm-hmm. in. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I just threw everything in. And so I ended up getting this like really rich brown color, which I'd mm-hmm. never gotten from dandelions before, which was really interesting. And it was surprising because I'm like, yeah, I've never gotten that color before. And it's yeah. just so fun. <laughs> It's so yeah. fun. So people are like, oh, can you write a re- you know recipe for that? I'm like, no, I really can't. <laughs> I'm like, I can tell you what I did. I can tell you what I used as a mordant, but I can tell you that it probably won't exactly turn out that way again. And I'm really not going for that. Like, I like that randomness. And yeah. um, I, otherwise, I think I'd get bored if I knew exactly what was going to happen. I don't know if it would be as appealing to me. That's just my personality, I guess. Yeah, I think there's so much like variation with natural dyes. But the thing that I realize also, you start to learn the range of a color, the Mm -hmm. range of a plant, right? You you see the maroon, like the Hopi black dye sunflowers. I got these beautiful purple grays when using them fresh and highly saturated, you know, fiber to plant ratio. But then when I dried them, they were more like maroons and, and darker I wouldn't call it red, but more like a kind of maroonish, brownish, purplish, reddish. And how long um, did you dye the seeds for to get that color? For the dye? Yeah. For the dried? Oh, yeah. I usually soak overnight. I usually soak about 24 hours. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so that was different. And then, you know, like I'll have a secondhand linen, cotton, silk, wool, but then I did cashmere and that took the color differently than, than the wool, which was also fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started last year, I, I did a workshop with a local herbalist and I'll definitely do more of that in the future. But when you start to look at the overlap between medicinal plants and dye plants, that is really fascinating to me. And I call them the triple power plants, the plants that are edible, medicinal, and dye color, like a dandelion, for example. Oh, you yeah. Can eat, yeah. Right? Absolutely. You can eat the leaves. It's a. It's also a, a medicinal plant. And you can dye with every part of the plant, the flower, the leaves, and the root. Um, so that's really fascinating just to think there are all these super potent, magical plants around that do all these fantastic things. Um, so, yeah, I think that the seasons, it definitely dictates, you know, the plants that I'm working with, the materials that I'm working with. And it pushes you out of your comfort zone. I did a lot of foraging when I lived in San Francisco and Oakland. Um, I'd just hike up in the hills and collect eucalyptus leaves and eucalyptus buttons. Or I'd walk through the parks and I could get, like, wild fennel or um, there's these sweet little yellow wildflowers that grow in the sidewalks, oxalis. Um, and you could, I could forage, you know, these materials, absolutely. But here I can really not forage much January, February, and early March. I mean, <laughs> right. a little bit, but not much. <laughs> so that's when the food plants come in, the food scraps come into play. But now I'm learning a little bit more about, um, you know, dying with uh, evergreens and dying with barks and, and pine and um, that kind of thing. And, or how to store our fruit tree clippings in the barn because, you know, a lot of fruit trees, you can use the barks and um, the different parts of the, the prunings. Yes. And so, a lot of times we, that gets discarded. So exactly. Yeah. I've, of course I'm, I'm to the point where since I don't have a barn, um, <laughs> yeah. I run out of space to put all this stuff, you know, and it, you can't right. really like have a bunch of pruning like tree branches in your living room, but 
Yeah. I don't know if there's anything that I didn't ask you that you would like the listeners to know or um, any, anything that you might have to say about upcoming projects. I know I always feel bad asking about upcoming projects when someone's worked so hard on a book project and I'm like, what's next? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, uh, I actually didn't even get to, you know, it's not even out yet. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm definitely starting to think about what's next. Um, so the book officially comes out October 16th, 2018, um, but it's available for pre-order now. So we're just we're just wrapping up like the final final design decisions about the book. Um, like we just chose the end papers, you know, like a week or two ago. Oh, so fun! So that's exciting because it is really concluding now, and and um, we sent off to print soon. But I'm definitely thinking about the next things, and I've got some workshops coming up, and I'm hosting the first retreat in my barn this fall. Um, oh, exciting! A, yeah, that was definitely a dream of mine in moving here to sort of have a a barn, um, that could also be used for my work for sure, but also for teaching and, um, gathering, you know, in, in small groups, it's a small barn, so it's a very small gathering. Um, but yeah, I'm going to host retreat and, um, I've got some teaching, you know, lots of workshops coming up and then just kind of thinking around what's next, but also I just feel like my passion with sustainability and with slow fashion is really about access. I really just want it to be more and more accessible to more and more people. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of work to be done around that. And I feel very grateful that I'm able to publish and um, write and sort of share information in that way. But I'm definitely thinking about how can I share more information with more people and hoping to get an online class up soon and and just that kind of distribution of knowledge is so powerful. And um, I think going back to my sort of like community organizing days and, and working in nonprofit arts is how can you really serve the community through what you're doing? And how can you really share knowledge and share information with with the community in a way that's going to support them and going to increase the quality of their life? And I feel like there's such an opportunity in slow fashion to do that. So. Well, it's, that all sounds wonderful. So I think this is, and people can, if people want to follow you, you're on Instagram and you're also, you have a website. What's the best way for people to do a newsletter as well? What's the best way for people to follow you and stay up on what your classes are coming up and all that good stuff? Yeah, all of that. Um, you can definitely, I have a monthly newsletter that you can sign up through my website and I post on Instagram about six times a week. I usually take a day off, <laughs> um, but almost daily. And um, yeah, through my website too, for sure. And if you want to tell people your website so they can. It's my whole name, which is probably just as hard to spell as it is to pronounce. It's Katrina Rodaba. So it's K-A-T-R-I-N-A-R-O-D-A-B-A-U-G-H.com. Awesome. And they can find everything there, including updates about your book and classes and all that good stuff. Even the barn retreat is on there. Um, so yes, it is. Even the barn retreat. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, it looks like this one sold out, but it sounds like you're going to have more because you yes, own the, you own one. the barn. So I own the yeah. barn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can plan another one on whenever you want. So that's yeah, awesome. True. <laughs> yeah, well, good for you. Well, congrats on all your success and all your wonderful contributions to the oh, Fiber Thank you community. so much. And many thanks to Katrina for being a guest on the show and just sharing her process of how she is just made that shift to being more mindful about what she's consuming. And there are a lot of easy takeaways. There's some things that we can start doing right away in our lives to be a little more mindful ourselves. The stitching really does look cool. So I can't wait to have some time to just sit down and do some mending. I have quite a pile of things I need to mend for me and my family. 
I will post links to Katrina's social media and her website over at craftsanity.com so you can pop over and have a look around. If you want to, you can leave a comment about the show. I actually have a comments feed again. So, woohoo. Stop by and say hi if you'd like. Also, if you have a suggestion for an upcoming guest, please, by all means, send me an email, jennifer at craftsanity.com. Uh, you can also contact me through Instagram, but probably the best way would be just to email me. So I am looking forward to recording more shows this summer. I'm also looking forward to taking a little break out by the lake I've decided to work really small and I'm making these little tiny like poster prints but they're mini so like two by three so I'm gonna bring some of my smallest presses and my equipment and I'm going to uh, just work on that for the next few days and just see what I come up with so that will be really fun I'll be back soon with another episode of the podcast. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at craftsanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at craftsanity.etsy.com. Same time next week we'll be...